Childhood is an endless cycle of anticipation. My first grader is all consumed with summer break. Many of you are perpetual students. We got a lot of PhDs and MDs and MDivs and DMINs and all other kind of stuff in this room. You guys are all laboring for the break that will never come. Um, and, and for the men in the room, uh, reminder, Mother's Day is next week. Um, tis the season for anticipation. We are all born into this, as Paul says, this present evil age or the age of anticipation where every season of life is winter until the spring of the second advent of our Lord, the consummation for which all creation groans. As a kid, nothing can, I'm going to use a liturgically um, confused illustration to begin the sermon. I'm still allowed to play that card, by the way. Um, as a kid, nothing can compare to the anticipation of Christmas. 20, 27 plus years ago, my brother and I, my brother Jay, or Jason, were sick with excitement. I'm sure my sister Emily was too, but she's not a part of this story, so... Um, <laughs> So I I went first. Grandma and grandpa gifts were always bonus gifts. Sometimes they came weeks before, sometimes weeks after, but they were always bonus. I ripped off the paper, elated, staring down upon rows of razor-sharp dinosaur teeth. Dinosaurs were all the rage in the 80s. Uh, Jay went next, my brother went next, only to look down through the haze of welling anger on a book. (laughs) His now very, very ironic, hilarious response through the ages, I don't like books. (laughs) If you know Jason, that's really funny. Um... Anticipation dashed upon the rocks of expectation. Two weeks ago, we started in First Peter, uh, the, in the lectionary, we started in First Peter, and if you missed it, uh, here's my one-sentence summary of my sermon from two weeks ago. The letter of First Peter addresses the problem of pain and calls us to lean into the future hope of the resurrection. We were very concerned with answering the why, the why of the problem of pain. And if you haven't yet attended Louisville Parish, uh, in two weeks on May 21st, you should do it. You should do that. And in the meantime, go to louisvillechurch.com and listen to Father Keith's latest sermon. If you want to soak up the grace of God, this is, this is really, if you hear one thing, If you want to soak up the grace of God, humble yourself under his teaching, in person and online. See, I I tend to carry people's emotions and burdens a lot. Um, You might not know it, because I hide it under a lot of humor and sarcasm. Praise be to God, you don't have to be Debbie Downer like me. One very important point uh, from Father Keith's sermon that he emphasized really over and over again, is the present reality of hope. The present reality of hope, of joyful living for today. Eternal life is not simply about future anticipation of the resurrection, but living now in the power of the resurrection. John chapter 11, 
In verse 23, Jesus said to Martha, your brother Lazarus will rise again. And she said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And if I might irreverently add, right now. I am the resurrection and the life right now. You see, your life, Christian, can be lived with joy today. Future hope breaks into the present. And here is the fundamental question of human existence. This is the fundamental human question. How do I live with joy? So last time we answered the why question. Today we're going to really try to meditate Um, And a lot of this is really just a reflection on uh, Father Keith's message. How do I live with joy? And 1 Peter Peter is the soil in which the answer to this question grows. But first we have to do some tilling. We've got to do some hard work. And so if you will look with me at 1 Peter in chapter 2. I didn't get a page reference this morning. Forgive me. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's near the end. Uh, We're going to start right before uh, where our lectionary reading started in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2. That's a good noise. Hmm. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So this, this starts off, get a, little, get a little context. We give honor to the president or to the president's cronies or to Governor Cooper, uh, to every bureaucrat everywhere. Peter addresses, and, and why does he say this? Because most people... This is really important. Most people in most places make an attempt to reward goodness and punish badness, okay? Give honor to them, so we do that. Moving on in verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone... Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In other words, Christ has set you free, like I said last time, so don't do bad stuff. Christ has set you free, so don't do bad stuff. You are free, but, only, but, but the only way to be free, Peter says, is to be bound to Christ. You are now his servant or his slave, so obey him. In righteous living, fear him, honor everyone else, and love the brotherhood. Um, I, I have to say this. This is, a, this is important in First Peter. It's not part of the sermon, okay? Love the brotherhood. It seems kind of a random phrase in this argument right here. Um, but if you look back in chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23, uh, this, is, this is a parenthetical, but it's a really important parenthetical. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So this phrase, love the brotherhood, it recalls this. And I, and I think this is a very important phrase in this context. It's a reminder that in some ways, the hardest people to love are those closest to you. Good friendships often end when they become business partnerships. If you live together your freshman year in the dorm, friendships frequently cease to be friendships. Any arrangement where you live and work in close proximity to another sinner for a long, prolonged amount of time, any arrangement, uh, you could insert church in that, in that discussion. In the midst of this admonition to honor everyone, especially authorities, even pagan presidents, Peter says, make sure you love the brotherhood too. And as my good friend says, Loving your enemies does not preclude you from loving your family, okay? So that's a parenthetical, but hear that. It's hard to love people that you live close with, that you're intimate with. Continuing in verse 18 of chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's talk a little bit about how much we love authority in our culture. Emperors and parents, presidents, governors, priests, bosses, slave masters. I'm not equating those things. Uh, those, they're just all authorities. It's one thing to love someone in authority over you when they are good people. It is an entirely different thing when they're wicked. The Revised Common Lectionary, which we follow on Sunday mornings would rather have us avert our eyes from this context. This context being Nero, emperor supreme, supremely good at crucifying Christians and setting them on fire for a little evening ambiance. This is the cultural context for humanity. The gospel breaks into the dirty streets of human depravity, the murderous Roman state, the hot fields of the antebellum south, the antiseptic surfaces of your friendly neighborhood abortionist, the cold reality of the Pharisee Anglican's hypocritical home life. This is the context where the gospel breaks in. On a lighter note, praise the Lord, uh, it's, debatable. it's debatable whether or not the 90s was the best decade for sketch comedy. I'll have that debate with you if you'd like. But one of my favorite, one of my favorite sketches was, it was from Mad TV, the classic sketch, Lowered Expectations. If you know it, you probably know the jingle. I'm not going to sing it. That's Father Ben's territory. Um, I'm not going to sing in the sermon. 
two decades before Tinder, lowered expectations, poked fun at dating services, and as the title suggests, the guys pining for a date were pretty rough around the edges. Uh, lower your expectations, and then he, he's not so bad. He's not so bad. Uh, we've all experienced this phenomenon. Expect a movie to be life-changing, and you're probably going to be let down. Expect nothing from a movie. Yeah, it's it pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, the, the Simeon fellow is preaching. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't so bad. Uh, lowered expectations. I'm thankful for those. Thank you. Um, are, we supposed, are we supposed to be doom and gloom pessimists? No. Uh, the gospel does not lower the bar of expectation. The gospel reorients our expectation. We are not called to be pessimists. We are called to be Christians. Or another, another word for that is Christ followers. Look with me at verse 21, continuing in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now... You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So to summarize, suffering, reviling, death, patient endurance, healing, life. This is what we should anticipate. We say we want to be like Jesus. This is what it looks like. I was just driving from Raleigh on Friday, and billboards line our highways, and they say things like, be a better you. Church billboards. And um, I got one word for that, bull. Bull. He is the goal. To be with our shepherd to be with the emperor of our souls, the only gracious master, to be with him and to be like him. Two sides of the same coin. To be with him and to be like him. This is our context. This is our context, this is our context for answering this question, how do I live with Christian joy? How do I live with Christian joy? And so that was my introduction. Here's my sermon. Here's my sermon. That's all the ground. That's all. I'm serious. That is all the ground for how do, we, how do we answer this question. So look back with me at verse 19 of chapter 2. And I want you to pay attention to a, a particular phrase. In verse 19, For this is a gracious thing. All of this, all of this context, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Skip down. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, 
This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The Christian life comes down to this. It is both unbearably difficult and unbelievably easy. Here it is. Your suffering is a gift. And you could substitute all kinds of words there. Your pain is a gift. The trouble you go through in your life is a gift. And and here's the real question. Do you receive do you receive suffering in this life as a gracious thing? As a gracious thing is is life all of it? Is all of life a gift? And Here's, here's the thing um, us Reformed guys really need to hear. It's a choice. This is a choice. For your whole life, you've been anticipating being welcomed into your heavenly father's house for Christmas. Your grandma and grandpa's house. You sit down, tearing off the wrapping paper of your life. This isn't what I expected. I don't like it. The choice is set before us a thousand times a day. Some of us more than others, and some of us, hear me, some of us in the midst of profound pain, more suffering than I have ever known. And the question is the same for all of us. Do you receive your suffering as a gift? Is all of this a gracious thing? As we, as we mentioned two weeks ago, the unavoidable reality of life. As you get older, responsibility grows and trouble grows with it, right? When you're a child, you wreck your bike and you get a skinned knee. Now, you wreck your car and manslaughter. Then it was terrible high school dating relationships. Now, a failed marriage. Then it was missing out on Susie Q's Sweet 16, Now, it's the lonely ache of singleness. Falling from monkey bars and breaking your arm grows into cancer, miscarriage, dementia. In your youth, you have a lost job. And after the weight of almost a century of living, you carry a century of lost jobs, of lost lives, of friends who have died, spouses and children. And I, and I don't mean to trivialize the struggles of childhood, but to live is to bear burdens, and to live longer is to bear more burdens. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we are made alive. If you follow Jesus, the burdens of life, your increasing trouble can be received with ever-increasing joy. As trouble increases, joy increases. To be authentic and real doesn't mean you should complain and whine and lament all the time. I I am so tired of being a realist. I complain so much. And most of the time, it is through the soul-crushing veil of sarcasm. It's not funny. It's not funny. Stop complaining about your church. Pastors are sometimes the worst at this. That's not my job. That's not your job. 
Receive the gift of church in all its beauty and brokenness with joy. Here's the challenge for myself. I want to stop complaining about my children, about my busyness. Multiplying children in your home means multiplying suffering. I can prove it. (laughs) I can prove it. Y'all. But the Christian parent... Hear hear this. The Christ-following parent with faith and with hope and with love as your family grows, your joy can grow too. Will you receive your children as a gift? And church, will you rise up alongside mothers and fathers, alongside single parents, alongside children and troubled teens, alongside families of every kind, and will you serve them with joy? Maybe you're lonely. All this talk about multiplying children just makes you angry. Multiplying hours at home alone. Whether you're single or divorced or widowed, an empty nester, whether you're in a lonely marriage, whether you're married and unable to have children, It is not good to be alone. Daily, monthly, yearly cycles of grief are burdens too heavy to carry alone. Give your burdens to Jesus. Will you choose to receive your suffering as a gift? And church, will you rise up alongside of single and widowed and lonely brothers and sisters in Christ, will you invite them into your home and proclaim the good news of Jesus with your life, the good news that they are not alone? This is a choice. This is a choice. This is a way of living. Your suffering is a gift. I'm not making this stuff up, guys. Read 1 Peter. Read 1 Peter chapter 3. This letter is a how-to guide for the downcast, for husbands who perpetually put their foot in their mouth, for all of us who are serially sarcastic and complaining. How are you going to receive the life you've been given? There are two options. There's only two options. You can receive it with joy or with bitterness. That's it. And this is not wake up and smile theology. This is not be a better you. But it is a choice. It is a choice. Your suffering is a gift. And I want to I end my sermon with two practical principles. Um, and I'm not going to labor them out. I could make biblical theological arguments. I could quote psychologists, which you guys know I like to do. I'm getting through this sermon without any quotes. Uh, it's all Bible. I want to end with two practical principles, and really, this whole sermon has been the first of three practical principles. Read this letter. Hear hear the word of God speak to you. That's the first thing. Uh, But here's here's two practical principles for how we can receive our life as a gracious thing, receive our suffering, and live with joy, and then we'll be done. The first thing, discipline yourself to interact with actual people. 
Ask yourself this question. Is the fantasy man on the page or the female image on your computer screen more life-giving than your spouse? Are you a serial consumer of Netflix narratives or are you taking interest in the breathing, walking, talking narratives sitting right next to you? Go on a walk and talk. Let the battery on your phone die for a few days. And then lastly, one practical bit of advice from this 33-year-old know-it-all. Sing your suffering. Not Taylor Swift, although I like Taylor Swift, confession. Not Taylor Swift and not 90s emo, whatever your brand of singing suffering is, not those. Sing, sing the Psalms. Sing the Psalms. Fill. We sang the psalm this morning. This is not planned, y'all. Um, fill your mind, fill your heart with the melodies of rejoicing in the midst of life. In the midst of life. Sounds like this. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Blessed be the Lord. This is from Friday's daily readings. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Sing at church. Sing in your car. Sing when you're angry. Sing when you're sad. Rejoice and be glad. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Follow him. Embrace your suffering. Embrace your share in his suffering. Die today and be born again in Christ and live. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.